I thought we'd talk a little bit this morning about strengthening the mind. It's been said that a fast mind is a sick mind. But it can also be said that a fast mind is a vulnerable mind, a weak mind. That might be more inclusive. That a slow mind is a strong mind. And that a still mind is a holy mind. And so what we are actually doing is, in our walk home, is that we are slowing our mind until finally it becomes as still as God itself. And just as the reading indicated from A Course in Miracles, this can be a very scary process. We are so used to conflict and turmoil and worry and fretting and going around and around and around and running here and there and casting about for what is wrong and talking to people endlessly about every kind of problem that we just pull from the air, that if we stop that for just a moment, we get scared that the world is going to fall in on us. Gail and I have um, uh, some friends who decided that they would go to Albuquerque just for fun. I know this sounds like a fictitious story. (laughs) Uh, They were just going to go there and just enjoy themselves. And they did. But do you know what happened? When they got back home, their house was flooded. Now, of course, isn't this the kind of thing that we're afraid of? If we let our guard, guard down one moment. Now, Our ego steps in and says, all of this could be uh, prevented if you would just worry every minute that you're in Albuquerque. Another friend of ours uh, told us that she was walking down the streets, down the street towards Big Joe. She was very, very happy. And suddenly the thought came, you'll pay for that. And that's the feeling we have. We'll pay for our relaxation. That that we are actually being called upon by the universe to be wary, to be on guard, to monitor everything, to second-guess what we just did endlessly. And we actually feel a slight discomfort when we give that up for even just a minute. But what I hope that all of you are beginning to sense is that when your mind is in conflict, even the least little bit of conflict, when your mind is not sure, when you're not sure about what you're doing, when there's a question, that your mind is very weak and very vulnerable. It is in a shattered state. It isn't actually in a shattered state, but that's the way it feels. And this is why the world hurts you. And this is the only reason that the world hurts you. It's because you have allowed your mind to become weak. Now, by allowed, I mean you have exerted the necessary effort to weaken your mind. Maybe in the opening meditation you sense that just a moment. It took a little effort to worry. It took a little effort to remember some upcoming duty or task or something left undone. The mind naturally springs back to oneness and to strength if we don't tamper with it. And as I have mentioned here before, With the influx of Eastern philosophy into the West, one of the misconceptions about Eastern philosophy that has developed, it is not part of Eastern philosophy, uh, Eastern mysticism, 
Hinduism, Buddhism, and so forth. It is not part of these systems, but many people in the West have gotten the idea that the mind is a bad thing. It's something to be afraid of. It is, in fact, an enemy. That your very mind is your enemy. And this comes, of course, from translating what we call in this church the ego into the word mind. And so if you were to use the word mind for the word ego, and if that's the only mind you had, then possibly there'd be something to fear about it. But with what would you fear it? Aha, I got you there, didn't I? <clears throat> All right. We've also spoken here that it is obvious that when we sleep at night, the entire mind is not affected by the dream. How many people here went to camp in the summer? Did any of you ever go to camp? No, this isn't. Well, yes, uh -huh. maybe half of you did. Huh? More than that. Uh, I don't know if you did these kinds of, kinds of things. But uh, I can uh, see, it, I went to camp S&M. Uh, <clears throat> no, Sue and Mohawk. Yeah, see? Gosh, all right now. Uh, at camp S&M, we, what we did is... Um, we would wait until one of the unsuspected fellow campers fell asleep. Did you ever do this? And then we might get a feather, tickle his peach fuzz, because we none of us had beards, and you know we were little campers. And he would think it was a fly, and he would deal with it as if it were a fly while continuing to dream. Or did you ever pull the sheets down just a little bit and watch someone? Pull them up. You pull. There was a counselor at, at Camp S. This is a true story. There was a counselor there at Camp S and M who was very interested in hypnotism, and he used to hypnotize the little sleeping campers. Uh, all the other campers in the cabin thought this was great fun, and they would uh, encourage him to do that. In fact, they would run out and tell him if someone had fallen asleep. And it was a tradition at Camp S&M for us to get around the bonfire. Uh, I can't remember if it was every night or once a week or something. I think it was once a week. And, at, and we would have these activities. And then, when it was all over, we would uh, sing taps. Day is done. That kind of thing. You remember that? Right. <laughs> Gone the sun. Now, if you were to remember all those words, <laughs> which I can't remember, uh, but I remember there was a part in Taps that <clears throat> that is towards the end. It would it was it would say, "All is quiet." Remember that? Now, this is what he would. <laughs> <laughs> so, what he would do is he would hypnotize the unsuspecting camper. To scream bloody murder when we got to that point, you see, and this is a very, <laughs> and it and he, it happened every time. Some camper would be stand up right when we were saying that and just yell at the top of his lungs. All of which goes to show that your entire mind is not caught up in the dream you're dreaming. Now that's clear, isn't it? It's clear that when you dream at night, only a part of the mind is caught up in the dream. That is an analogy for what happens in life. Only a very small part of our mind is caught up in our ego. It is true that our ego is our idle wish. We call it an ego as if it were a separate thing, but it is our desire to be thoroughly miserable and to do everything we can to make ourselves fearful and unhappy and unpleasant and so forth. Anxious, agitated, depressed, 
and on and on and on. We actively seek to do that. We do everything we can think of to make ourselves miserable and to put ourselves in one state after the other as we go through the day. But only a small part of our mind does this. This whole series of mistakes is in only one part of the mind. Not that it's a location, but only one part of the mind does this. But when your attention goes to that little part of the mind, then your mind is divided. And there are many expressions for this. Uh, having mixed feelings. You've heard people say that. I've got mixed feelings about such and such. Uh, well, I'm divided on that. you heard someone say that? Um, I w- I op- I've got one of these wonderful old uh, original thesauruses uh, that has some of the great old phrases that uh, people used to use that they don't use anymore. Some of them, of course, they do. And I, I was interested to see what were some of the phrases, some of the synonyms for being undecided? And of course, the media, you know the one the media, media uses all the time, which is on the horns of a dilemma. <laughs> it's a wonderful picture. <laughs> um, but it was interesting to me that that the expressions that have grown up around ambiguity, mental conflict, being undecided, that state of mind that we are in most of the time, that even the way in which we express that is conflicted. And so on the one hand, you have expressions like this, up in the air, so-and-so is up in the air about this, so-and-so is in suspense, so-and-so is up a tree. Those of you who aren't from Texas probably haven't heard that one. Uh, Up in the air, in suspense, up a tree. But also, did you know that there are these phrases? You're floored. You're stumped, you're thrown, you're sunk. Now, which are you? Are you up in the air? And now, obviously, <laughs> obviously, there have been very well-meaning people, probably great, giant intellects who have come along, who have put these things together to make some cohesive system. So you actually have expressions like up a, up a stump. <laughs> have you ever heard that one? Up a stump. And then there are others like hard put. I like that one. What you want to be is easy put, soft put. How are you feeling today? I'm soft put. <laughs> At my wits end. That's a great one. In a pucker. Heard that one. All balled up. And then the most magnificent one for people who go to places like the dispensable church is mystified. <laughs> I was talking to one of Santa Fe's holy men, you know, one of these people who lived in caves with the bears and the, and the tigers and so forth. And um, I was discussing with him how it is true that in this country, People on a spiritual path think that when they get sick, they have to read books with spiritual overtones. And he said, yes, and it just makes them sicker. (laughs) He knew all about that. Now, it's, it's possible to talk about this phenomenon of weakening the mind, of being in a state of conflict. But it takes a great deal of practice to begin to sense the actual essence of this subject. So in order for you to actually see what happens before you get miserable, before you get sick, before you have an accident, before some relationship blows up, before your finances become chaotic, but mainly before you just get miserable. You have to begin to sense 
this crumbling of the mind that takes place. Now that means that you have at least gotten to the point where you have experienced a little of the wholeness and the peace of the mind. But probably all of you have prayed or meditated to some extent, and so you have felt a little of this tremendous strength that the mind has when it is of one thing, when it has a single purpose, when it is not divided in suspense, up a tree, ambiguous, mixed feelings, have a question, thinking about something, all of that business, worrying, which is, constitutes most of our mental life. And what I would like to urge you to do is to watch your mind very carefully this coming week and just see when the mind is whole and peaceful and notice that it doesn't matter what's going on around you. Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Science is uh, has the rep. This is a modern church. We use modern language here. Christian Science has the rep of uh, of wanting to change things, of being a system in which uh, you try to perfect the world around you, uh, in which you're not supposed to have uh, any disability whatsoever, always supposed to have good health, and on and on and on. But let me quote to you, if I can remember it, a line from one of Mary Baker Eddy's hymns. It matters not what be thy lot, so loved of God. For storm or shine, pure peace is thine, whate'er betide. Let me say that again. It matters not what be thy lot, so loved of God. For storm or shine, pure peace is thine, whate'er betide. That is a strong mind. That is what we are after. It takes a great deal of work and concentration, and practice. It takes tremendous motivation, self-motivation, self-induced motivation. Always it is possible for you to say to yourself, I'm not trying hard enough. I need to meditate more. And if by that you mean, be more relaxed, and more peaceful, and more at ease, and happier, and enjoy myself more, then you are right if you mean by that some self-torturing effort, some uh, busy mental work, some uh, running question of, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Then, of course, it doesn't mean that at all. But if you have the least inkling of what true prayer and true spiritual work is, if you understand it means just what we did in that opening meditation, a relaxing, a dispersal that strengthens and makes whole and one, a gentleness, in which you become like a star that shines in all directions and casts light upon everything, then that indeed is the work that you need to do more of that you need to tuck into more corners of your day. It is very important to understand that your ego, even though it represents only a very small part of your mind, even though it is an idle wish, even though it is a conflicted wish, so you are of two wishes, you are of two wills, you are actually trying to approach life in two different ways at this time. One is you wish to be peaceful and happy and kind and loving and to know your oneness with your brothers and sisters and to experience your oneness with God, all of which is the same thing. That's part of you. That is the major part of you, if only you could see it. The other will, the other wish that you have which probably you are pursuing most of the time, is to be miserable and unhappy and conflicted and worry and so forth. And you must understand that this little identity that you have made to carry out this wish, 
because your true self can't carry it out. Do you see that? If you were to have a wish, I would like to be separate and different and set apart and better than, more depressed than, more miserable than, richer than, poorer than, healthier than, sicker than. It doesn't matter. The ego doesn't, ego doesn't care. Anything doesn't matter as long as it's different, as long as it sets you apart. Do you see that in order to carry out such a wish, you would have to manufacture a separate identity with which to do it? Because your true self could not do that. And that is, of course, what we have done. We have made a separate identity, even though it's only a fantasy identity. And we call this the ego. But it is already set up. And once it's set up, it's a little bit difficult to let it go. It almost as if it functions by itself, just as we've said before here, an imaginary playmate functions by itself once the child sets it up. Now, if the child never set up the imaginary playmate in the beginning, do you see how much easier it would be for him to enter into, or her, to enter into true companionship, real companionship, true friendship, but once this little girl, this little boy gets caught up in having an imaginary playmate or a series of them, then it's a little more difficult for them to enter into true... It's a little more difficult for them to go out and play with the other kids on the block. It's a little more difficult. It's a little easier for them to sit in the corner during the birthday party and just watch. Because they have their imaginary playmates around them. And they think that this is giving them something. And that, of course, is what we do with our ego. We actually think that this little imaginary identity is giving us something. And it is already set up. This is not a fearful thing. This is something you must see clearly if you are to lay aside the ego. You must see that it is set up and that it operates in a certain way, although it is entirely your wish. And change your wish and you have no ego. But it's already set up and it attempts to extend its base of misery, of unhappiness. So when you Focus your attention into that little part of your mind, your self-image, your little name and body and little history and the whole little soap opera that lasts, what, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it lasts. This little thing. When you focus into that little soap opera, that little identity, then it operates the way it was set up. And one of the things that it does, always does, is it attempts to expand its borders, to increase its base of operation. And here are a couple ways that it does this. One is it acts out its negative feelings in some way. You don't have to act them out around other people. You can act them out at home. You can look quite depressed, act quite angry at home. You can act angry in a bathtub. The, the soap doesn't float anymore. When I was a child, the soap used to float, you see. And now you're throwing bars of uh, dial, you know, around or something like that. You can kick furniture, scream at the microwave. Or you can be very, very, very depressed and mope around and be slow and so forth. Or you can be agitated and hyped up and just sort of jiggle all over the place. You can even sing nervous little tunes as you do this and tell yourself that you are indeed a happy person. But there's a fear and a scurrying about, you see, takes place. There's no real peace, no oneness, no sureness about the outcome of all of this. And so when you 
take your feeling, what you feel, when you take some thought that your ego present, presents to your mind, when you take it up seriously, because there's so many thoughts that your ego presents to you that you don't take up, but when you take it up and you act it out in some way, whether it's picking up the telephone or doing it around other people or doing it by yourself, when it translates into bodily behavior, your ego thinks that it has accomplished a tremendous breakthrough because it thinks that it has translated this from your mind into something that is not your mind, your body. And if you are calling people up on the phone or you're talking about this kind of thing to other people, now you've got other bodies engaged in this. And do you see how this takes it away from your handling? How can you handle it quietly and by yourself if there are all these people caught? If the only reason that we think a dream is real at night is that there are things around us responding to us. And so there are people that answer us in a dream. They carry on conversations with us. They react to us. We pick up a piece of paper in a dream and we fold it and it has creases in it as a result. And we say, I am actually this thing. But you're not because you're in a dream. You're actually lying in bed. But it seems real because something outside of what you think you are responds to it. And so that's what the ego is trying to get you to do always. To extend it out so that other things can confirm the reality of this unhappiness, this dis-ease. And so, of course, if you can limit that. you've made it much easier on yourself. Now, the second very common way that the ego tries to broaden its base and to make what is unreal real in your mind is that it makes you, it puts you in physical pain in some way. Now, this is different than just an emotion or a thought because now it seems to be transferred to your body. So you get sick you're ill, you have a little accident, uh, you drink too much or eat too much or you eat the wrong thing or something, and now there's some bodily symptom. Or you get upset and now there's some flush in the body. Or there is some emotional pain caused in some other way, seemingly from not enough sleep or from this, that, and the other. But primarily, it's illness and sickness and things like that. Although it's these all these other things too. It doesn't really matter as long as it seems to be taking place in your body apart from your mind. So illness, sickness, is the ego's way of proving that you are a body. Because if your body's sick and you hurt, you of course are a body. That's the ego's logic. So what do you do if you're on a spiritual path? I know a man who uh, has recently uh, become a little infatuated, a little... Uh, fall in love a little bit uh, with the woman. It's necessary to say these things. Explain the whole thing in Santa Fe. Santa Fe, we have to get all the details uh, accurate now. Um, and um, so uh, he had recently uh, had a uh, telephone conversation with this person uh, and had had a date with this person and was feeling uh, very upset about the whole thing. Couldn't really figure out what it was that he had done wrong. 
but felt like he had done something just awful, that there was going to be some doom, some consequence. He hadn't done it right. Both neither the telephone conversation nor the date. But he was on a spiritual path, and so he decided to take care of this. He realized that this thought came from his ego. It made him unhappy. And so he made the decision to stop every time the thought came to his mind about either the telephone conversation or the date. He decided that he would stop physically in his tracks and remind himself of the truth of the situation. And the truth that he reminded himself of, his truth, the one that he liked using, not the right truth, just the one he liked using was, that he was already at one with this person. There was nothing to accomplish. There was nothing to bring about. That the self of this person and the self of him were one self. And that the whole relationship was a blessing. It was looked over, looked over, watched over, cared for. There was nothing to do about it. And that was the simple truth that he used every time the thought came. And he told me that in the morning, when he started doing this, he had to do it almost every two or three minutes. And so it took him a long time to actually walk across the living room <laughs> because he would physically stop. But he said that by the afternoon, it was over. The ego did not present him with even the least little thought about the conversation or the date. However, the ego presented him with this thought. Oh, oh, I see. You are one with this person. Well, of course, you're at one with everybody. That means, of course, you will live by yourself for the rest of your life. <laughs> that is really the ego's logic. And this man told me that no sooner had that thought entered his mind, then he got a headache instantly, accompanying the thought. Now you see how it translates it? So not only was the thought going to come, but there would be a physical symptom also. Now this is exactly how the ego attempts to expand its base. Because he had not expanded it in the traditional ways, which would be to call up his friends and discuss this endlessly and tell him, tell his friends everything he had done on the date and on the, on the phone, and they would tell him where he had made his mistakes. <laughs> you see. Nor had he uh, launched into some flurry of, uh, of uh, rehabilitating, uh, saving uh, activity in which he would pull this relationship from the fires of he did not know what by sending out gifts and roses and making... Uh, little conver uh, calls, telephone calls, and asking if everything's all right and all this stuff. He did not plague the person with his fear. He knew better than to do that. But the ego did enter in the one little door that was left open, and that was a physical symptom. Now, let's talk about what do you do if you get sick? Because this is how the ego tries to expand its base. This is what you do if you come to the dispensable church. This is not what you do necessarily in other systems. And people who come to the dispensable church affectionately known as dispensapalians. <laughs> dispensapalians uh, do not quote their beloved minister. They do not enter into spiritual discussions and say, well, Hugh said, they don't do that. Never do they say, well, Hugh said. This is just something that I give to you because I know it will save you time. I'm not saying this is the only approach. It is the quickest and easiest approach that I know of 
And I believe with all my heart, after studying the Course in Miracles for, what, six years, doing the lessons many, many, many times, but surely there are people who have done them more times and have studied them more years. But from the study I have done of the Course in Miracles, I truly believe that it is what A Course in Miracles is saying. That doesn't matter. It is definitely what I find to be most helpful. Here's what you do if you get sick, because we talked about this a little bit last Sunday. You know, a question came up about this. You notice that your physical symptoms call forth certain thoughts in your mind. Now, you do not know when you decided or why you decided to get sick. And do not spend any time trying to figure that out. Don't try to understand that. Because if a healing insight comes, the whole thing vanishes at the same time. If it's a figured out insight as to why this happened or when it happened, the illness doesn't leave. And so let the insight come in its own time. Take the fact merely that you're sick. It's, of course, best not to decide to get sick in the first place. And if you go through the day in peace, you will make fewer decisions of that kind. You will decide less to be in financial trouble, to have blow-ups with your friends, to get sick, to have accidents, and so forth. You will not eliminate this completely, but there will be a, a gradual diminishing of this. But now you're in the state in which you are phys physically feeling something. It doesn't seem to be in your mind anymore. It seems to have been taken out of your mind and put in your body where you can't quite get a hold of it. And, yes, you, and yet you have this, may I say, crazy notion that you're supposed to heal the body with your mind. And yet you don't think that the body is your mind. You think your body is something other than a thought. And so, I'm supposed to, with my thought, change this into a flower. And yet, I think it's wood. That's exactly where the ego would like to have you. Do you see the position that puts you in? To start trying to change an illness with your mind when you really don't believe that it is your mind? And I can tell you, if you're sick, you don't believe it. At that moment, you don't believe it. So what do you do? What's the quick and easy way? The long, protracted way, and it will work, not saying it won't work, is to start doing mental battle with this thing in some way. Reading spiritual texts and saying affirmations and mantras and, you know, all the stuff. Well, last Sunday, I recommended reading Agatha Christie. <laughs> we'll go a step beyond that uh, today. Notice that the symptom calls for a train of thought. You cannot feel pain in your body, distress in your body of any sort. I don't care what it's come from. Too hot a bath, not enough sleep, or one too many Cheerios. It doesn't matter what the cause is. The minute you feel anything in your body, it calls for a line of thought. In fact, it calls for the affirmation of a law. So without, unless you're aware of this, you won't see this happening. You will actually begin affirming a certain law. It is not a true law, but it is a law in your imagination. And you will say, uh, I didn't get enough sleep, and I should have, I knew better than that, and so forth, and now I have to pay for this. There's nothing I can do. It's going to be a, just a miserable, awful, awful day. There's no time for me to take a nap. No, no, no. And there's this, this thing sort of going on. There's sort of a depressed acceptance of what this means. Heal that. That's what you heal. It is okay to heal the thought. Because you know that's a thought. So you don't deal with the symptom. You deal with the thought, the depressed acceptance, the agitation, the panic of having to do something. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you go out and you try to, you know, 1,500 remedies all at once. That is what you heal, that sense of panic or that depressed acceptance. 
or that, yes, I deserve this because. So you first must be aware of the thought and know that there's a thought if there's a symptom. Take this on faith from me. If you feel pain in your body in any way, distress in your body in any way, there is an accompanying thought in your mind simultaneously. Look for it. It's there. What depressed, accepting law have you entered into? And then remind yourself of the truth. See what the thought is. Don't make it complicated. Just see what it is. Yes, it's silly, but see what it is. And then remind yourself of the truth. Or, and we'll talk just to, in just a moment of some other things you can do. I'm just giving you one thing right now. Remind yourself the truth. I am under no law but God's. That which is peace made me peace. I am nothing but peace. That which is pure, bright joy made me shining joy. I am nothing but joy. That is the correcting of the thought. Now, the mistake that people make is they do that and then they look at their body to see if it's had any effect. Don't do that. Have no interest in whether or not this in any way affects your body or the symptom. I realize this is a difficult thing to carry through, but you don't have to do it perfectly. You just have to, every time you begin to think, ah, maybe I've hit upon some super healing device and I can write a book about this. Whenever this kind of thought's going, you just say, no, no. I'm going to deal only with what I think of as the mind. Don't worry about what other people have told you is the mind. Just deal with what you know absolutely is the mind. And the thought that old age or a particular accident or a certain food or, or a virus or a change in the weather or a flame from a stove or an insect can produce a predictable result and make you miserable, make you less than God, than the bright, shining light of the world is not true. And so correct it gently. Just say no, and then say the truth to yourself. Now, I'm going to add one more thing. Three things in which the three ways in which the ego attempts to extend its base of operation. And three ways in which you as an ego, you as an ego attempt to make yourself more miserable than you are. The first one was to act it out, the second one was to be in pain in some way, physical pain, to transfer it into the body physically. The first way, you just don't act it out. That's quite simple. You see how simple that is? But once you're sick, it doesn't seem to be that simple. It, of course, is that simple, but it doesn't seem to be that simple. So deal with how it seems to be. Deal with that. Otherwise, you're being dishonest. And if a healing takes place, don't think about it. Don't be interested in it. Don't call people up. Don't go around telling the story. Oh, Hugh tricked us again. Showed us how to heal our bodies and pretended that he wasn't doing that. Yes, that's in fact true. I'm doing that. But I'm telling you that if you get interested in the results, you have completely missed the point, which is you deal only with your mind. Now, when you get to the point where you realize that your body is a thought, and I am not at that point, and I don't know anybody who is completely at that point, I know one person who's very close to it, and that's all. I don't know anyone who's absolutely there 100%. But when you get to the point where you know that your body is just a much a, as much a thought as it was in the dream you had last night, then you will be able to correct it. But you will be knowing that you're correcting your mind. And you therefore, there will be no sense of battle whatsoever. 
You will change it as easily as you change your dream at night. Now, haven't you had the experience, most of you, I'm sure, have had the experience at night of sudden, suddenly remembering that you're dreaming, and that you're dreaming now. You're asleep and you're dreaming, and suddenly there's, you know that you're dreaming. Now, the dream's still going on, but suddenly you realize, oh, this is a dream. Please, how many people here have had that experience? Okay, most of you have had that experience. Now, now here's what happens. You think, oh boy, this is a dream, and I know it. And so what do you do? You start trying to change the dream, because you cannot know it's a dream without also knowing you can change it. And so you say, oh, this is a dream. And you try to make it a delicious dream, an exciting dream, a titillating dream, or whatever, fancy dream, whatever it is that you suddenly want to do. I'm not going to ask those of you <laughs> who have tried that to raise your hands, because I know that every one of you who have known that it's a dream have had the thought, ah, let me see, I think I'll just change things a little bit. But what happened? The minute you tried to change things even a little bit, you fell more deeply into sleep and you forgot that it was a dream. You cannot, why is that? Why did that happen? Because you were judging the dream. You were now saying it's not all a dream. This kind of figure over here in this kind of situation is more valuable than this other situation. So I think I'll change this and I think I'll make such and such a thing happen in the dream. That's a judgment. Now you're not thinking dream, you're thinking good and bad. Value, more value and less value. And so as soon as you assign value to parts of a dream, you're not saying it's all dream. And so, of course, you lose the ability. The answer, of course, is that in your daily life, deal with only what you know to be your mind and attempt only to heal it, only to relax it, only to bring more light and more peace and more joy into it. Okay, um, I'm running very short. Oh, I'm going to mention the third thing. The third thing is to be in a state. So we mentioned uh, acting out sickness and being in a state. My fellow dispensapalians, you are like me. And that is you love to be in a state. You just love to be in a state. You just love to say, I cannot do this. I can't do it. You love to be upset one more time. You love to be angry one more time. You love to be depressed one more time. You love to have an awful day one more day. Now, you may not see this, that you love it, but surely you see how often you get yourself in a state. I'm adding because you love it. So when I told you, couple Sundays ago that I had an awful, awful, awful day during the week, it was because I loved it. I loved having an awful, awful day. All that happened was, towards the end of the day, in effect, I said to myself, I don't love this anymore. I'm not going to have an awful day. And then, of course, the thought that would be most helpful to me came into my mind, which is what I told you. All right. So in addition to reminding yourself of the truth, what can you do? And I'm going to end with this. Eleven ways to meditate. I'm going to go through them very quickly because I have very little time. Uh, I was very proud of this list. I, uh, I just thinking, you know, all the different ways that I myself meditate, calm my mind, bring peace to my mind, strengthen my mind, bring my mind back together when something's happened. When I'm having an awful day, or I'm in a state, or I'm sick, or I'm acting out, or something. Something's going on. Some thought keeps coming to my mind. When any of that stuff's going on, here are 11 things that I do. And I've made this little list, and I was very proud of it. And I called 
one of these holy men again. And uh, I said, he was a Hindu. I said, in, how, in, in Hinduism, how many ways are there to meditate? A hundred and eight. <laughs> the important thing to realize is... <laughs> Uh, the important thing to realize is it doesn't matter what way you meditate, what way you bring peace to your mind, what way you get back on the path and start walking toward God again, because that's the only thing you have to do that's more important than your job or your spouse or your children or your health or your diet or your house or your bills or anything else, your appearance, your hair, your clothes, anything... You want to get back on that path. Yes, you've gotten off, but you want to get back on it so you can make a few more steps forward. That's the most important thing. Nothing else matters. How do I get back to being a nice, kind, gentle, helpful, peaceful person and walk toward the heart of God? How do I do that? How do I continue this progress? Here are 11 ways to meditate. I'm using the word meditate, meaning to get back on the path. Because I also found out from a friend that there are many uh, meditation. There's med meditation and contemplation and concentration and on on and on and on. And there's yantras and mantras and mandalas and I just you know. So <laughs> so we're not going to get into that. Uh, I'm just going to give you eleven simple ways. Sit and watch your thoughts. Nothing more than that. Just watch them. Like some silly parade of funny creatures. Just watch them. That is a sufficient way to bring your mind back together. You just sit down and look at what thoughts you're thinking. Just observe them calmly. Make no judgment on them whatsoever. This will bring you back to peace every single time if you choose to use this particular way. Just watch your thoughts. If you want to just say, ah, that thought, uh-huh, that thought, mm-hmm, you can do that. Number two, you can use an imagery. We sometimes use imageries here in our closing meditations when we have them. You might look on page 69, I mean, excuse me, lesson number 69 of A Course in Miracles. There's a beautiful image that we've used sometimes here is a good example of how to use an imagery as a form of meditation. Number three, close your eyes, sit down, and just listen to the sounds around you, just the sounds alone. What sounds do you hear? This will bring your mind back to the present, which is into God. Strengthen it, and it will let go automatically of the problem. I'm not saying it will heal your body, but it will heal what you think of as your mind. Number four, simply watch your breathing. There are, of course, many techniques of breathing. I'm not talking about that. If you know tech, breathing techniques, then, of course, you can apply those. I'm talking about just sitting, closing your eyes, and watching your breathing without trying to change it in any way. You make no alteration whatsoever. Just watch the way you breathe. Make no judgment on it. Number five. Pause. It's always good to physically pause. It's not always possible, but it's usually possible. And practice utter mental stillness for just a few seconds, if that's all you can. Think not a single thought an absolutely still, quiet mind for just a few seconds. Number six. This can be called a mantra or an affirmation. But what you do is you just merely begin repeating some sentence that you love that has a calming effect an encouraging effect, a happifying effect on you. You just begin repeating some phrase or sentence or some word. God loves me. 
our God. God. Our peace. Peace. Our God is peace. Or a longer sentence. It doesn't matter. But you repeat it over and over. Number seven. You repeat some sound over and over to yourself. Many people like the the sound OM. Some people like to use the sounds that Patricia's son teaches. Some of you have taken workshops from her, and others of you know about her cassettes. You can get her cassettes. Or there are therapies that teach certain sounds. There's the sound of the primal scream. There's the sound of a hymn or a phrase from a hymn. And you just begin singing this very gently to yourself. This lovely, lovely phrase from some song. Or this om. Or this quail sound, like Patricia Sun teaches. Or the, or the scream, or it doesn't matter. Something that genuinely brings peace to you. Number eight. You begin some movement. Some movement. There are many people who teach movement. And, it, and many people, for example, find jogging a meditation. Many people absolutely do not. <laughs> some people fa- find dancing in a certain way a meditation. So there's Sufi dancing, the whirling dervishes, and so forth. A movement, some movement. That's why a simple task will often calm the mind. A task that you like doing. That's why washing dishes for some people is a meditation. They enjoy doing it. It's peaceful. They know how to do it. They're confident and they just do it. That is a meditation. Don't be afraid to use it. Use anything that will bring you back to the path to God. Number nine. We just spoke about this a minute ago. Pause and remind yourself of the truth. Tell yourself what the truth of the situation is. You have to know a little truth in order to do this, but most of you do. Number ten. Sit and focus with your eyes on something. It doesn't matter if it's just a dot on a wall. It doesn't matter if it's a flower. A flower is a wonderful thing to look at. You just look at the flower. And first of all, you look at the details of the flower. Let that be the first stage possible. You don't have to do it this way. And then you look at the flower as a whole. This will come about naturally. And then you will begin to feel a oneness with the flower. And so the softness of the rose will very gently become your softness. You will feel that you have taken on the softness of the rose. Or the gentle flickering of the flame of a candle. Or a mandala. Or anything that you want to look at. Number 11. You simply contemplate something. So this is with your eyes closed. Now you're not looking at it. It is, of course, possible to look first at a rose, close your eyes, still see the rose, and contemplate the nature, the essence of the rose. But you can also contemplate the love of God. You can contemplate how much God loves you. You can think and think and think about that, but not think about anything else. Or you can think just about light. You just contemplate light. Or you contemplate yourself. And so let's end this service with a very, very brief meditation. Aside from the dancing, please use any of these that you (laughs) have. would like to use right now 
let one of these things come to your mind and just try it for just a moment. And then you can have your white sugar. So let's close our eyes now and do that. Or if you're concentrating, you can look at something. 